Well, good morning. Y'all feeling rested? Isn't it great? Extra hours sleep? I love that. If we had a candidate that could get us that every Saturday night, I'd vote for him right there. I'd just be, I don't care what the issues are, just every Saturday night, get an extra hour of sleep. I think that'd be great. But, uh, my name is Pastor Mike, and I want to welcome you, especially if you're here for the very first time. Um, how many of you got my letter this week? Ministry update letter? Did you get that? Great, good. Uh, you know, every few months I usually write an update letter, just some, some uh, kind of behind-the-scenes things that are going on here at the church. There's never enough time on the weekend services to kind of walk you through all of that. And so I encourage you to, to get that. Now, if you don't have internet, you don't have email, uh, we will always have out in the lobby or in the patio, like right after the service today, you can pick one up, a hard copy of that because we're, we're not trying to exclude anyone, but we just, it's, a, it's so, so much faster, saves money, saves posters, saves trees to do it the other way. And so, uh, so if, you, if you don't have internet, grab it out there. Now, if you read the letter, you know, as Neil mentioned, that we're really excited with this brand new ministry started uh, for single adults. And, and this is just a passion for mine. A lot of you, you may not know that before Lynn and I came here, that we were involved in the church near San Diego. And that uh, the, we, Lynn and I were personally involved in this uh, ministry for single adults. It became the largest in the state of California. And we just became, you know, we're just a huge passion for that. And ever since we've come, I've been praying and dreaming and waiting for the day we get to launch this. And the time has finally come. And so we are very excited about that. I hope you can join us uh, if you're single uh, this Friday night as we just talk a little bit more about the future of that, launching the big, big ministry in February. And by the way, if you, if you didn't get the ministry update letter, uh, the reason is because we don't have your email address. And so it's funny because this week my wife said to me, I said to her, hey, did you read my letter? And she said, what letter? <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, the one I sent via email. And she goes, oh, do you think I should be sending in my card, like putting in a card each week? I said, that'd be a good idea. That'd be a really good idea. So uh, anyway, she said, so what did you say? I said, you have to get the letter and read it. I'm not telling you. But anyway, uh, so if that's your, if your story, make sure we get your email address. And then we just we say, hey, anyone who's attended in the last, I don't know, a couple times, last six months or a year or something, we send it out liberally, so uh, you'll have it. Now, we're going to go into our time of teaching, and today we've got a very subtle topic, a quiet topic, not controversial topic, is politics. And uh, so I'm just going to close in prayer while I'll go home, and that'll be great. We'll stay happy that way. Uh, seriously, inside of your program is a white message note sheet, and so if you're, uh, especially if you're new here, that's how it works. You pull this out, help you follow along our time of teaching. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we're excited to be your church, your people, uh, called by your name. And God, today we want to talk about a very important topic, about what it means to be followers of Jesus in the midst of a secular society. What does it mean in terms of our participation, our involvement in government and politics and that sort of thing? And so we pray that you'd come, and as we ask every week, that you'd be our teacher, that you'd lead us, you'd guide us, you'd open our ears, you'd give us an openness to hear new things, different things, to be reminded of some things we've forgotten. And you'd prepare us to follow you in this important area, especially this week as we go into the elections. And we pray this in your name. Uh, amen. Well, our story starts today in the 1960s. And uh, I'm not sure exactly when this movement started. But, you know, early 60s, by the mid-60s, it's, it's underway. And it was a countercultural movement. It was really kind of a movement of a rebellion against the, the, the values of our culture. And, and of course, uh, a lot of us were there, right? It was the, the hippie movement. Remember this? And uh, some of you were there and uh, remember it, and uh, some of you were there and, and don't remember. Um, <laughs> but it'll probably all come back, some series of flashbacks throughout the service. Um, some of you are too young for that, but you've probably read about it in textbooks or 
uh, seen documentaries on TV or uh, at least heard the music. And, and I think we all know that it, it really was a countercultural movement, right? It was a, a movement of, at its core, a movement of rebellion. We don't want to be what the previous generations are. We want to do life in a different way. And so it was kind of a reactionary, revolutionary uh, type movement. And, um, and there were certain uh, flashpoints. You remember that, that it came, started during the time of the Vietnam War. And, and in many ways, the whole hippie movement was a protest movement. Um, and, and it really, uh, one of the, the key, uh, key cities in this whole movement was San Francisco. Remember that? And Haight-Ashbury, the, the district downtown where, where uh, all the hippies would gather. And one of the key moments in the movement came in 1967. It was in, the, in January of 67. And at Golden Gate Park there, if you've ever been to San Francisco, you can picture that, 20,000 uh, hippies from across the United States came to this, this movement. I, I was in uh, San Francisco last March just walking through that park and trying to picture this, you know, this place taken over. And, uh, and by, by June of that year, by June of 67, man, it was in full swing. They had the Monterey uh, Pop Festival, three-day music festival, 100 miles south of San Francisco, where, where the world got introduced to the music of the movement. And, uh, and so rock and roll music got, got kind of wide play there. And um, I remember there was one particular song that kind of caught the heart of the nation and really the heart of the world. It's kind of uh, talking about this movement, kind of describing it. It was about the city of San Francisco. You might, you might remember that. If you go to San Francisco, be sure to wear a flower in your head. You remember that? And, uh, and I'm, I'm sure that some of you won't remember it, so I thought I'd go on YouTube and take us back. So here we go. There we go. Now feel free, free, feel free to laugh at appropriate points. She's my favorite.
Okay, I think we get the point. We get the point. So they all come back to you now. It's funny, uh, I was sitting at my desk just watching that the first uh, couple times and just laughing, just remembering, you know, it just seemed so cool at the time and so crazy now. But uh, we're, gonna, we're continuing on this series that we've been in today, uh, or been in now for uh, most of the year called The Way. And for those of you who are brand new here at Rocky Peak, this is a study of the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. And today we come to Romans chapter 13. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to take, uh, take them out and turn there. And I want to give you just a little bit of uh, kind of... Uh, overview of what's going to happen in Romans 13, then we're going to jump in. Uh, the issue in Romans 13 is, okay, so we've decided to be uh, Christ followers, and uh, we're going to follow Jesus now. Um, and, and so the question is, well, what does it look like in re- relationship to our government, to, you know, to, to relating to po- political, to politics? Now, uh, if you've been with us the last uh, few weeks, you know that we're kind of jumping ahead here a little bit, because the last couple of weeks we've been in chapter 12, and Paul's been talking to us about what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to, to give our lives totally to God, total surrender? What does it look like to have him kind of rechange, reshape the way we think, that we can experience his, his, his plan in our life, experience his will in our life? And he, he talked to us last week, he gave the first example of, of uh, what it looks like in terms of finding our purpose in life. Remember that. And so this, that's the first half of chapter 12. The second half of chapter 12 Paul's going to talk to us about the law of love. And what he's going to basically say is there's kind of one rule, one law for us as Christ followers that rules all the other rules, and it's the law of love. What would love do in this situation? So in the second half of chapter 12, he talks about love. And then in the second half of chapter 13, he comes back and talks more about love. But in between those two is this little passage on our relationship with the government, with politics. And in light of the fact that here we are uh, going to the polls this week and have some big elections, it just made sense to me, why don't we just jump ahead one week, tackle chapter 13 this week, and then we'll come back and we'll do chapter 12 and 13 together as they both talk about love uh, anyway in the, in the next two weeks. And so um, anyway, in chapter 13, he's talking about our relationship as Christ followers to the law or to the, the, to the government, the leaders of the land, the laws of the land. And basically what he's going to say, and we'll have to kind of unpack this some, but he's basically going to say that, that, the, that uh, the government's a good thing. Now, even it's a fallen world, it's not a perfect, it's not a perfect measurement, it's a fallen world, fallen leaders, but by and large, government is a, is a good thing, and that God has given the government a specific job to do, and that's to create a safe, uh, safe world, where those who are doing the right thing are protected, those who are doing the wrong things are prosecuted, and that's kind of their basic job. And so as Christ followers, we need to be supportive of our government leaders. We need to be supportive of the laws of the land to make the world a better place. Now, of course, the question comes up, yeah, but what if you live in a crazy part of the world or at crazy times? Like, what if you live in, say, like Nazi Germany or you live in Sudan or Darfur today where there's genocide going on? Like, what, what do you do in those situations? And we'll talk about that more later, all right? But right now, let's just jump in and see what he says. So chapter 13, and uh, we'll jump in at verse 1. He says, everyone, so there's no exceptions here. If you're a Christ follower, this applies to you. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which is God has established, and the authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, this is a, a consistent teaching of the Bible, that though we live in a fallen world and a fallen government, fallen leaders and so on, 
that, that behind the leaders of the governments, behind the governments of the world, that God is still in charge of the universe. And he still works through these fallen systems to accomplish his plan. And so this is a common teaching throughout Scripture. Like, let me give you just two or three examples. In the Old Testament, uh, the time of Daniel, Daniel was a, a Jewish exile who was called into service to the king of Babylon, who's named Nebuchadnezzar. It was like the superpower of the world at that time, the most powerful empire ever to date at that point in the world. And he was an advisor, and Nebuchadnezzar was this pagan king, and he was serving, and, and it, the power kind of went to his head, and so uh, God gave a message to Daniel to take this pagan king. And, and here's the message. It's there in your note sheet. If you want to probably turn the page. Um, there's two or three quick verses there. And here's the message that Daniel gave to the king, this pagan king. He says, the most high, in other words, God, is sovereign. He rules over the kingdoms of men. And he gives them to anyone he wishes, and he sets over them the lowliest of men. So he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to know this. You're the king, but God is in charge, and he's the one who's put you in this place of leadership. So you need to be responsible to him. Okay? Uh, if you look at the next verse, a statement from Isaiah the prophet, chapter 40, he says, Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket, and they're regarded as dust on the scales, that God brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. So again, God's in charge of the universe. Uh, another story from the New Testament that you may remember. Remember when Jesus was on trial before Pilate? Now remember, Pilate was a Roman governor. And so uh, uh, Pilate, he comes before Pilate. And Pilate says, hey, Jesus, don't you realize that I have the power to either execute you or set you free? And you remember what Jesus said? It's there on your note from John 10. Jesus said, hey, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So he says, it's true. Yes, you do have power over me, God, but, you gotta, but God has put you in that place of power. You wouldn't be there unless God put you there. And so here is this, this Roman governor who's about to do a very unjust thing. In fact, it's probably the most unjust thing in the history of the world. He's about to execute the one person who's never done anything wrong, right? And so, and yet Jesus says, but beyond that, we can see God at work, that God is still in control of his universe. And so that's what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 13 in verse 1. Everyone must submit to himself to the governing authorities because there is no authority except that which God has established. And the authorities that exist have been established by God. So consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Okay? And so in other words, if God's put these leaders in place... We need to respect their leadership. If we don't do, respect their leadership, we're rejecting God, all right? Now, verse 3, he says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do what's right, but for those who do what's wrong. So the basic job of rulers or government leaders is to create a society that's a safe society where those who do what are right are rewarded, those who do what's wrong are punished. That's the basic job of government, to create a safe society. And he says, so do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Well, then do what's right, and he will commend you. So he's basically saying, hey, if you don't want to be, get a ticket on the freeway, don't speed. And you don't have to worry about the cops. Okay? Um, verse 4, he goes even further. He says, for he is God's servant to do you good. Now, catch that. 
uh, isn't it interesting, the terminology, God's servant. Isn't that amazing? We talk about public servants, but Paul says actually these government leaders, they're more than public servants, they're actually God's servants. Pretty strong, strong language. And he says, um, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. So you and I in our lives, if someone does us wrong, we're not supposed to go out and take justice in our own hands, right? We're not to be vigilantes. But God has given the power of the sword. He's given the power of prosecution, power of pain, of punishment. He's given that authority to the government in order to exercise, in order to be a deterrent to crime and so on to create a safe society. So he says again, um, he is God's servant. He's an agent of wrath to bring God's punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. So he says there's two reasons why as Christ followers we need to listen to our leaders, we need to uh, follow the laws of the land. The first reason is because of fear that if we don't, we'll get in trouble, Right? Because and this, you can't just kind of, in other words, what he's saying is, as I, I know you're God's kids, I know you're Christ's follower, but if you go out and break the law, don't ask God to protect you. Because God's given them the authority to punish. You're not going to get kind of a, a get out of jail free card just because you're a Christian. You see? Um, and he says, so that's reason number one, uh, because, uh, do, you know, because of fear. But the second reason is because of conscience. In other words, if God has put these people in place, then we need to honor them because God's put them in place. Now he gives us a couple practical examples. This is why also you pay taxes. Now, you're just like, oh, you're kidding me. As Christ followers, we're supposed to pay taxes. Yes, we are. And so he's saying so we need to pay our taxes. So, so no more kind of deals under the table so that we don't have to pay our taxes. No more exaggerating of our write-offs so we don't have to pay taxes. No more underreporting of income. So we have to, we have, he says, yes, you have to pay taxes. Now, why do we pay taxes? He says, because the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Now, this is very interesting. This is the third time in this passage where he said that the government is God's servants. The first two times, he uses the kind of the standard word for servants, which is the Greek word diakonos, kind of a normal word. We get a word deacons from that. Um, but this last time, he uses a new word. It's a word for servants that was used to describe kind of the spiritual servants of God in the Old Testament, like the priests or Levites who would serve at the temple. And what Paul is saying is that, hey, in the same way that in the temple, uh, the people would bring their gifts and offerings, and part of those offerings would be used to support the priests so that they could do their, their work, and so they got their financial support from that. In the same way, that's what our taxes are for, because these are God's servants too, but they're in a different arena than the public arena. And so when we pay our taxes, we're providing the funds so that they can give their full time to governing, right? That's what now, he says, um, verse 7, so give every, to give everyone what you owe him, if you owe taxes, then pay your taxes. If you owe revenue, we might call those like government fees, if you owe uh, go, uh, revenue, then revenue. And of course, if you owe respect to these leaders, then the respect. If honor, then honor. And the context is government. The context is saying that, hey, you need to respect your leaders. You need to honor your leaders. All right? So this is the passage. He says, as Christ followers, that we need to be uh, following our leaders, respecting our leaders. We need to be obeying the laws of the land. Now, 
there's a question here. Well, why is Paul even raising this issue? You know, he's talking in chapter 12 about things like love and forgiveness. In chapter 13, he's going to talk to us more about love. And right in the middle, he stops and gives us this teaching on government, being Christ-wise in government. Why does he even do it? We'll come back and talk about that more later. But there in your note sheet, um, you have a couple sections. The first one, what I want to do in our time that we have today is, is kind of unpack this. Is Number one, I want to talk about kind of the big picture principle that flows out of this teaching about our relationship with government, kind of God and government, the one big picture application for us principle. And then secondly, I want to come back and talk about three practical implications for us as Christ followers that flow out of this, this passage. So let's just jump in. So you find that section, you know, she God and government, and uh, there's one big picture, and it's kind of obvious, really, but I want to uh, just kind of focus in a little bit. It goes like this. The, the first thing that flows out of the passage, the big picture principle, is that government is a good thing. According to Paul, government's a good thing. Now, I don't know about you, but does that make anyone nervous in here? I am getting nervous right now. Just, like, really, like, really, like, I want to, immediately, I want to qualify this. Now, maybe this is because, like, I grew up when I did, you know, and so, you know, it's, you grew up during Watergate and then the Iran-Contra scandal and different kind of things that have happened over time, and, and, and I just want to qualify this. I want to say, time out, Paul. Can we just not say that just government is a good thing, just flat out? Can we, can we just say, like, something like this, I mean, like, like, government can be a good thing? Can we say it that way? Or we, or there's, it's possible the government would be a good thing? Or how about this one? I could imagine a day. You know, I mean, I just want to qualify this in some way. And yet, to be fair to Paul, I think it's important we note a couple things about what he's saying. First of all, I think as you read the passage, it's clear that Paul is assuming a government that's basically doing a good job. And, and I'll, I'll point out why I say this. But in other words, Paul is not really referring to Nazi Germany. He's not writing this in the context of Nazi Germany. He's not writing this in the context of an, an African nation with its practicing genocide and saying, just obey the government you know, leaders. You know, it's like they're, they're doing, a good, doing a good job. Uh, he's not writing that. Uh, he's writing in a context that's basically, uh, he says the government's doing a good job. Now, not a great job, right? Because remember who Paul was, when Paul was writing this letter in the 50s uh, AD, uh, he's living under Rome, right? And Rome is a dictatorship, and they have a ruler named Caesar. And he, execute, he executes people on whim, and they take over whole nations at his command, uh, very imperialistic. And so it's not perfect at all. And yet Paul seems to, to, to be su suggesting that basically uh, his instructions are for a government that's basically doing a good job of preserving the public peace. Okay? And you say, well, why do you say that? Well, I want you to look at the passage. I want to point out three things he says. They're kind of subtle. You might miss them if you're not really focused in. But I want you to notice three things here. In verse 3, notice what he says, For rulers will bring, uh, wait, no, verse 3, For rulers hold no terror to those who do what's right. So let me ask you a question. Is that always the truth? No, that's not true. Like if you were living uh, in Europe in, during World War II, that is not a true statement, right? Like if you were Cory ten Boom, remember the Christian who hid Jews so they wouldn't be executed, remember that? Um, is it true that the rulers held no terror for her? No, right? 
So, so you see what I'm saying? Paul's assuming that the rulers are not holding terror, that this, this government situation. He's assuming that. Let's move on. He's, keep going. He says, do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. You see? Now, is that true that in all cultures at all time, if you do what is right, the, the leaders will commend you? No, it's not right, is it? Uh, like if you live in, say, Saudi Arabia, or if you live in Iran today, you know, Iran's in the process of, uh, of passing a new law that if you uh, convert from Islam to becoming a Christian, that you'll be executed. It's just, it's just the law there. And so is it true that if you do what is right in Iran, you'll be commended for doing it? No, it's not true. You see, he's, picturing, he's not picturing Iran when he says this. Um, go on, look at the next thing he says. For he is God's servant to do you good. You see, he's picturing a government that's doing what's good. Is that always true? No. So what Paul is picturing in this, he's not picturing, I don't think this is kind of a totalitarian type situation, extremely progressive, saying, hey, whatever they do, whatever the government tells you, you just do it because it's always from God. He's not saying that. In fact, the Bible would teach exactly the opposite, that there are times when we are called as Christ followers to rebel against the government, Okay. But, but, there, but the, if you look through the examples we're given in Bible, there are always times of like major moral or spiritual issue. These are not like policy decisions, right? They're made, like, let me give you two or three examples. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament? The uh, nation of Israel is living in Egypt. Uh, it's the time of Moses. And they're, they're just, they're propagating like crazy. They're just, the nation's expanding. And the Pharaoh, the government leader, is very upset because he's concerned they're, they're going to become too numerous and overtake the Egyptians. And so he gives an order to the Egyptian midwives, or to the Israeli midwives. And by the way, hey, did you all know that Dave and Christy Cox, speaking of midwives, had their baby this week? Yes. Yeah, it was great. So, um, so very exciting. Uh, eight pounds, two ounces. Uh, Caleb Cox. It's got a nice ring to it. And so uh, happy for them. But anyway, so the order is given to the, the Israeli midwives. That when the Israeli, uh, when, the, when the women deliver, that if it's a baby girl, that's fine, all things are good. But if it's a baby boy, kill him. It's always a way of cutting down the, the, the population explosion, right? And so, so what did the Israeli midwives do? Did they say, yes, sure, you're the governing authorities. God would have us always obey the government. Uh, no, they didn't. If you know the story, that they, they actually protected the baby boys and they lied to the, the Pharaoh and so you remember the story, God struck them dead. Remember that? You don't remember the story, do you? You're like, really? He struck them dead? No, he didn't. He rewarded them, remember, with families of their own. So they lied to the king, and they made up this whole story about, well, the, you know, the Israeli women, they're just amazing. They, just, they dropped those babies on the run. They're just so vigorous. And uh, by the time we get there, they're already delivered. They're hidden the babies, and we can't find them. And, and so God rewarded them for protecting that, you see? Or here's an example. Um, in, uh, in the time of Daniel, you know, Daniel we mentioned earlier, he had three buddies who were also exiles, been captured from their homeland, taken to Babylon. And their names were, had been changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, remember these guys from this story? It's funny. There's some little children ditty that you tell kids when you go to bed. I can't remember how it goes, where it's like, da-da-da, and to bed we go. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you remember this? Yeah, last, last service, I blew it so badly. I, I couldn't remember, so I made it up. I said, it's uh, my shack, your shack, or to bed we go. 
And after I said it, it's like, I don't think that's the kid's ditty. I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, so maybe you can correct me afterwards. But I'm, I'm sure it was a marriage ditty for sure. So it's good. It's all good. Um, anyway, so you remember these three guys? They were exiles. And, uh, and so the, the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, gave this command to the whole nation. We're all going to worship this one huge idol. And anyone doesn't worship them then they'll get burned alive. And these three Jewish men said, we can't do that. We're followers of the God of Israel. We don't worship idols. And so we, we're going to rebel against your, your direction. And again, once again, did God, you know, punish them? No, he rewarded them for that. Remember, are you thinking of the New Testament when Peter and, uh, Peter and John, two of Jesus' apostles, shortly after Jesus had risen from the dead and returned to heaven, they're, they're teaching, that they're, they're spreading the message, the good news about the resurrection in Jerusalem. The Jewish authorities bring them in and say, you can't do this anymore. And they said, we have to obey God rather than men. Right? And so there are times as Christ followers, we are called to rebel against government. So when Paul says here that we, the government's a good thing, we have to qualify that. He's saying, he's talking about none of these extreme times of history where they're doing these horrible things. He's saying, in general, it's a fallen world. They're not, this is not a fallen, they're, they're fallen leaders. They're going to do bad things. But in general, we need to obey. We need to, why? Because they're pursuing the public peace. We need to make the world a better place. They're trying to make the world a better place. We need to help them do that, all right? But there's also one other thing that we need to say here that I think it's important for us uh, as kind of children of our own, of this age, of this, this generation, is that um, uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but oftentimes it's easy to get down on government, but have you ever thought what the alternative is, you know? Have you ever kind of imagined a world where there was no government? You know, imagine a world where there was no uh, uh, government leaders, there was no uh, there were no political leaders, there was no uh, cops, there was no police, there was no military. Imagine a world like that. Maybe chaos, right? Like, uh, just to put it in our own language, all you have to do is imagine the 118 if there was never any police on the 118, right? Just think how fast you'd be going. You know, probably faster than you are now, right? And so imagine the world like that. And so, so Paul is saying, hey, yes, this is a broken, you know, this is a broken, it's a fallen world, and yet government is still, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's a good thing. It's, it, it may not be the best thing. You know, the perfect government's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. But in the meantime, um, uh, some government's better than no government. Um, and it's funny because in every era, there are always people that rise up and, and basically they'll say this, that, that, you know, really the world would be a better place if we didn't have government. The world be a better. If, you know, the problem with the world is not the world. The problem is the, the government leaders. It's the it's the police. It's the, the if we just got rid of that and everyone did their own thing, then life would be great. You know, we started today with this story about the, the hippie movement, and if you remember that uh, very much, this was the spirit of the hippie movement, kind of very much anti-government, anti-leadership, anti-police. Remember, we called the police pigs, that kind of thing. And there was a sense of anti-military. There was a sense of you could just get rid of all the authorities in life. In fact, one of the, 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 uh, the mottos was question authority, right? If you just get rid of all the authorities in life would be great. Just let everyone do their own thing. Remember the song uh, popular uh, at the time by the Youngbloods? It was called Get Together. And uh, remember that? He said, come, on, uh, come on, people now. Smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. And that's kind of the theme song of this whole movement, that if we just get rid of that. But, you know, the irony is, is that, is that uh, what the hippies didn't understand and movements throughout history that have been kind of like this have not understood 
is, the, is kind of what we've learned in Romans about human nature. That we are a fallen people, we're a fallen race, or something broken. And if you just let everyone do their own thing, there's going to be a lot of people who do evil things, right? And so you need something. I, I don't know if you've ever studied this, uh, but it, like I said, in March I was back in San Francisco, and I, I walked through Haight-Ashbury. It was just kind of, boy, what a... I was a little too young to kind of be totally in the hippie movement. I was just kind of old enough to know what was going on, but not enough to be. But it was just really interesting to walk through Haight-Ashbury and see the destruction, kind of see that area to this day still marked. But I don't know if you remember that. But, you know, it started in Haight-Ashbury. was the big center. And it was love, peace, and sharing. But within a couple years, if you've ever seen documentary or anything, within a couple years, it was a center of crime, prostitution, violence, abuse. It was horrible. And you still see the, the, the remnants of that today. In fact, by 69, it had gotten so bad that uh, if you remember, President, or not President, Governor Reagan had to bring in the National Guard for two weeks just to stop the violence in, in Berkeley. Um, and in fact, in 69, later in the year, there was a, one, a huge music festival 30 miles uh, east of San Francisco in Altamont. And it was going to be like the Woodstock of the West. And they had 300,000 people show up for that. And uh, the organizers, I, I don't know whose bright idea this was, but they decided to have the Hells Angels provide security. You know that? It's, it's great, great new movement. Yeah, going. And, uh, and then just, you know, everyone's love, peace, just get along, do your own thing. And then in the middle of the Rolling Stones concert, there was an 18-year-old girl who was stabbed to death. And all of a sudden, the movement began to realize, hey, something's going wrong here, you see. There's something, there's a place for, for, for government. There's a place for these authorities. And so Paul says, hey, they've got a tough job. Their job is to make the world a better place. These laws are to do you good. And so as Christ's followers, we should be at the forefront of this, supporting them, supporting these laws, making the world a better place, okay? So that's the big picture principle that flows out. Government's a good thing. Now, uh, three implications for us, I think are real practical and timely for us right now, especially this time of elections. Number one, the, the first implication is that we need to obey the laws of the land. And this is kind of the obvious one. But let me talk about it just for a minute. You know, in every age and wherever the story of Jesus has gone, the movement of Jesus has gone, there have always been those who have taught that, hey, because we're followers of Jesus, because God is our Father and Christ is our brother, that we no longer have to submit to the laws of the land. This has always happened throughout Christendom. There's always been people that put two and two together and get six. And so, um, you know, the question is, like, why does Paul in Romans 13, you know, address this whole issue of God and government? Uh, he's been talking about love. He's going to talk about love more. Why does he take out seven verses? He, it's not the only time in his writings he talks about it, but it's by far the longest time. And, and most of the scholars, or at least many scholars, believe that the reason he brings it up here was because there was a movement going on in the church of Rome who was basically teaching this, that Caesar is no longer our Lord, that Jesus is our Lord. And because we're citizens of the next life, not citizens of this life, um, we don't need to follow the laws of the land. We don't need to follow the leaders of the land. And so, and there's always been this kind of movement within Christianity, wherever it goes, there's always some who kind of get off base. In fact, I want to take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to the right. Keep your finger here, but keep, turn to the right to First uh, Peter chapter 3. I want to show you another passage where this shows up in the New Testament. So First Peter chapter 3, or let's make it 2, First Peter 2.
First Peter chapter 2, we'll start at verse 13. So this is Peter writing, also during the time of the Caesar. And he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. It's the same kind of line. Whether to the king as to the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do good. So notice again, the job of government is the same again. To punish those who do wrong, commend those who do good. Create a safe society. It's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the, the ignorant talk of foolish men. Now, what, what does he mean by ignorant talk? Well, he goes on, and he says, Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. And so there have always been those who have come and said, Hey, we report to Jesus. You're, you know, I, I need to follow him. People do this. They work at Starbucks. You know, it's like, you're not my boss. Jesus is my boss. I'm a Christian. You know what I'm saying? We do this at a lot of different levels. That I don't need to listen to you in authority because I'm a child of God and I report directly to him. This kind of mentality. And so it happens in government. And so it was happening in Peter's time. It was happening in Paul's time. Where he says there were some Christians who were using their freedom in Christ as a cover-up from evil. I don't need to follow those laws. Those laws don't apply to me because I am a child of God. And so what Paul is saying here is that, no, hey, as Christians, we need to pave the way. Hey, pay your taxes. You know, don't litter. You know, play by the rules. Don't do fraud. Don't do insider trading. You know, these laws are there to make the world a better place. So follow them. We should be at the forefront. In fact, there in your note sheet, uh, Paul puts it like this in his letter to Titus, the young pastor. He says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, in other words, to follow the laws of the land, and to be ready to do whatever is what? Is that whatever is good? This is the issue. As Christ followers, we should be a positive force in our culture, ready to do whatever is good. And so we need to be the one not trying to skirt the laws. We need to be the one supporting these laws that are creating a, a, a better society, all right? Okay, so that's number one. That's the first uh, implication. Uh, number two. So what does that mean? I mean, it's, you know, just practically. Well, we've talked, you know, pay your taxes. If you're underage, don't drink. If you're drinking, don't drive. You know, just these things. He's saying, lead the way. Do, do the right thing. Okay, number two. Now, this one's a little bit more challenging for us, I think, and it goes like this, honor our leaders. If it's true that God has put these leaders in place and he's behind them, um, then we need to honor our leaders. Now, I want you to see this. In Romans 13, 7, I just want us to, re to review this because you might not like what I'm about to say, so I want to make sure I base it on the Bible so you're mad at the Bible and not me. 13, 7 um, Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And if honor, then honor. Look on your note sheet. This is the way the Apostle Peter puts it. In that same passage we were just looking at, the very next verse says, uh, show proper respect to everyone. Catch that. To everyone. As Christ followers, we're to show proper respect to everyone we come in contact with. And then he gets specific. Love the brotherhood of believers Fear God and honor the king. Now catch this. Guess who is king when Peter is writing this? Who's Caesar? Have you ever heard a guy named Nero? What, he became one of the worst 
and, and most evil rulers in the history of the world. And yet, uh, Peter says we're to honor the king, right? This is not a matter of, hey, but, but I disagree with this policy. No, honor the king, right? Now, this is hard to do, isn't it? Have you ever found this hard to do in your life? Do you ever find yourself, like there's certain politicians or judges that you just kind of hate what they're doing, and you find yourself so frustrated with them, right? Is that, am I, like, anyone ever feel that way? Am I the only one? Okay, good, good. Okay, it's like, like everyone's like, no, just your problem, Mike. I guess it's, you know, we've all got that wired. Uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes you read these court rulings or you read what a politician will say, a certain policy, and you just go, are you kidding me? Like, that is crazy. And, and so this is not an easy one to follow. But I want you to catch this. It's really not an option. That if we're serious about following Jesus, if we're serious about having our minds renewed and doing life a new way, it can't get much clearer, is it? Honor the king. So, so let me draw an important distinction here. There's a huge difference between disagreeing and disrespecting, right? And we need to learn that difference. That as Christ followers, there's going to be many times we're going to disagree with our government leaders, and that's fine. And we can be vocal, and we can take a stand, and we say, I disagree with that. But as Christ followers, there's never a place for us to show disrespect. See the difference? And this is a tough one, isn't it? And I, and I think, honestly, as far as the Christian community, we have often failed in this, haven't we? I, especially around election time, man, some of the things that we will say about candidates we don't agree with or, or positions we don't agree with can be pretty attacking, can't they? Then, in fact, sometimes they can be downright slanderous. They can be really evil. They can be even untrue. You know, I, let, me, let me give just a really practical example. I had an email from a lady this last week. It was a very honest email. It was a sincere question, and I took it that way. But it raised issues. She said, she said do you think that Barack Obama is the Antichrist? Can I tell you seriously, when I hear that question, it almost wants to make me weep. Like, do you realize what a serious, serious, serious accusation that is? I don't think that was her heart at all. She's just like hearing people saying this and what could it be and she's just looking for, you know, answers. And, and so I answered her back and I said, you know, in the Bible it says that when the Antichrist comes that he will oppose God and he will set himself up at the temple and claim to be God. I think we're on safe ground here. You know? But I'm telling you, as a Christian community, we have often sinned in this area. That there have been leaders that we disagree with and the things that we will say and the, 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 the tales that we will tell, the jokes that we will tell, will be anything but showing respect. And, and can the Bible be more clear? Well, let me put it this way. Next week, this week we're going to vote for our next president, right? And, and so one of the two guys is going to win. And in my guess, it's a safe bet here that there's probably some of us voting for both candidates in, the, in a room this size. That's my, my guess. So that means that some of us are going to be disappointed in who's elected. But so that means a week from today, we will have a new president-elect in our country. And the question is, if it's not the candidate of your choice, how are you going to speak about that man? Right? And are you going to speak with respect 
or are you going to speak with disrespect? See? Now, I'll tell you something. I think we've shot ourselves in the foot as a movement so many times because as Christ followers, we will speak with such hatred or such disrespect for people we don't agree with. And then we don't understand why the world looks at us and says, why they don't take us seriously. We say, oh, yeah, we're Christians. You'll know us by our love. Right? And it's, it's, it's as if that we've read our Bibles and said, okay, we're to show respect to all men unless they're a politician or a judge we disagree with. And then, in that case, all bets are off. All spare. And remember who we follow, men and women. We follow the one who said that we were to love our enemies. Remember that? That we were to pray for those who persecute us, Right? And so as followers of Jesus, we need to be vocal and take a stand on issues in our culture, but we always need to do it with love and respect. Jesus has not given us any leeway on that, right? That's what it means to be a Christ follower. You know, I, heard a, I read a story a while ago that just broke my heart. It took, it took place back in the, the early 90s, uh, 93 I think it was, and there's a Christian author, his name's Philip Yancey. And he's, uh, he's a great writer and, and uh, read a lot of his books, good, good guy. And uh, he, was, he, he uh, received an invitation to the White House. And it was, he was along with 11 other uh, kind of well-known, uh, big-time Christian leaders. Right? That we would all recognize their names. And, uh, and he was invited there, and, um, and he was to meet with President Clinton. And the president at the time, was, his ratings with conservatives were very low. And it was very clear once they came in to have this meeting, these 12, these 12 uh, Christian guys, that, you know, obviously he's trying to repair that. He's trying to, he's trying to connect. He's trying to, to build some rapport. He's trying to understand. Um, and it was just a time when many of the things that were being done in the name of Christ and said about him were just so, like, so violent, so extreme, you know. And so he's trying to understand that. He's trying to connect, trying to build some relationship. So he meets with these 12 leaders. And at the end of that time, one of the things he said, or in the conversation, one of the things he said, and this is a quote, he said, I've been in politics long enough to expect criticism and hostility, but I was totally unprepared for the hatred I get from Christians. And then he said, why is it that Christians hate so much? Wow. What an indictment. What an indictment. And so we're called to speak out. Yes, we're called to take a stand, yes. But we're always called to do it with love and respect, right? Exactly, really important. Okay, number three, third implication. The third implication is that we need to participate in the process. That as, as Christ's followers, when it comes to government, we need to participate in the process. Now, I mentioned this earlier, that as scholars look at Romans 13, and they try to figure out why did the Apostle Paul bring up this topic at this point in the letter, that, that one of the best theories, I think, is it has to do with, like I said, that there, was, there were some Christians who were saying, hey, we don't report to Caesar anymore. We're not part of this culture anymore. We have Jesus. We're going to the next life. And so we don't need to be involved in this life. We don't need to follow the laws of the land. We don't need to listen to our leaders. And Paul says, no, because you are Christ's followers and because you're citizens of the next life, you need to be the best citizens of this life. You need to be involved. You need to be connected. You need to participate. And, of course, this is what Jesus said, too. Remember, he said that we are to be the salt and light of the world. And he said that we are to make a difference in our culture. And he said that people, that, that as they see our good works, 
uh, not our good words, but our good works making a difference, that they would actually uh, bring honor and praise to God as a result of that. Say, well, that's really cool. This God you serve must be cool because look what you're doing. Okay, and so, okay, so one of the areas that we're to be involved is in the area of politics, the area of government to make a difference. That's what Paul's saying in chapter 13, that we need to be participating. Now, I think that this is especially true for us as Christ followers in our culture, because in our culture today, we have some incredible freedoms, don't we? Just opportunities. Like, you know, we have this, this, this right to vote, which is an incredible vote, kind of recent historically. People have spent, died, you know, for that, that to, to have that. And we have this tremendous, and so as Christ followers, we need to be participating in voting. We need to be educated. We, we not only can vote, we can support the candidate of our choice. We can speak out. We can support financially. We can run for office. And Paul says it's an honorable thing to run for office. You're, you're being God's work. You're, you're, you're being God's servant when you're serving in his capacity. And so as Christ's followers, he'll call diff- to different ones of us to different things. Some of us he'll call to run for office. Some, but we all should be involved. We should all be voting. We should all be kind of doing our thing. Now, this is especially true, I think, when our, when our uh, society is making really key and pivotal um, uh, cultural or uh, spiritual and moral decisions. That as followers of Jesus, if we love our culture and if we love our country, then we need to be engaged in the process, right? We, we, we need to be loving with our actions, being involved. Now, you know, if you've got here to Rocky Peak any length of time at all, you know that we're not a real political church. Um, we've chosen not to be involved in politics, and there's some, I think, some really good reasons for this. Um, uh, one reason is, is that in most issues that we face as a nation or state or whatever, on most issues, there is not a Christian position, is there? Now, now there will be people who tell you there's a Christian position. It happens to be theirs, but... But, but on most issues, there isn't. Like, you think about our current election and some of the biggest issues we're facing. Uh, we're facing uh, energy crisis, um, uh, uh, global warming, economy, uh, the war in Iraq. Um, you just kind of go down the line. There isn't a Christian position on these issues, right? What you'll find across the nation is people who love Jesus Christ, who committed to his word on both sides of this issue. They're gray areas. It's not crystal clear. And so, so we don't want as a church to be coming down in one way or another because there, there needs to be freedom in the body of Christ for you to seek God, study the issues, and do what you think God's want you to do. And that's one of the, one of the marks of a healthy church. It's one of those areas we'll be talking about in Romans 14. It's gray areas. But there's another reason, too, is that our primary calling as a church is to help people come to Jesus who are far from God, right? That's our primary calling. And, and we never want to give the impression that if for you to come to Jesus, you have to become part of a particular political party, right? Like in order to come to Jesus, you have to become a right-wing Republican. Or to become to Jesus in a different part of the country, you have to be a left-wing liberal, right? We, we don't want to confuse it. We want to keep it the same. We want people to come to Jesus, experience him in their own life, and then he will change and shape and direct them and go from there, right? But having said that, There are times in our culture when there are certain issues that rise up that they're not really political issues, they're really moral or spiritual issues. And I think there's a time when the church of Jesus needs to speak out to these moral or spiritual, not political issues. I think that we're facing one in our culture right now 
with this whole definition of marriage, aren't we? With, uh, with Prop 8. And we're going to be going to the polls this next week. And, and I really think this is, this is not a political issue. It's a moral issue. It's a spiritual issue. You know, we, we've seen this already in Romans. Remember in our study in Romans, back in chapter 1, you remember what Paul said in chapter 1? He says, this is what happens in the history of the world, that when a culture rejects God's leadership in their lives, that the lights begin to go out spiritually. And that they begin to get morally and spiritually confused. They begin to implode as a culture. They begin to self-destruct. Remember that? And he said one of the signs this is happening as they get further and further to God is there's such a moral confusion, it, it comes to a place even of their own sexuality. And you remember what he said? He said, so, so what happens is that men will begin to burn with lust towards other men. And women will begin to burn with lust. And they will exchange their natural relations for unnatural. Remember that from chapter 1? And he says, and this is the result of a culture that rejects God and creates gods in their own image and then begins to worship and serve the creation instead of the creator. And so this whole issue of marriage, how marriage is defined, is not a political issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's a moral issue. And I'll tell you, it, it really scares me. It scares me where our country is going, where our nation's going, where our, where our state's going. Because not only do this week will we decide as a state how we define marriage, but the implications, I think, are far-reaching. And I don't know if you've studied this or, uh, at all, but I think here's some of the implications that I see happening. I, I think very much that if we go down this road and we, we define marriage just kind of in however we want, you know, two men, two women, three, three people, four people, you know, whatever, you know, a group, whatever. We define it that way. I think there will come a day, and I think it will probably come soon, what will affect our curriculum in our schools. Yeah, and so we've already seen this right in the state of Massachusetts, right? Not the official curriculum, but where, uh, you know, teachers are, or, uh, you know, teaching kids that homosexuality is okay lifestyle at second grade. And, and, you know, parents can't even object to it and pull their kids out. The court said, no, you can't do that. I, I think it will affect our curriculum in our schools. I think it will affect many of your school, public school teachers. And I think this is going to eventually affect many of you. I mean, very likely that there will come a day where you are told you have to teach this. And if you don't teach this, you'll lose your job. I think that, will, that very likely will impact churches, that churches that refuse to marry uh, homosexual uh, relationships or that they, they teach on this topic what the Word of God teaches, that they will very much, will come a day we could lose our tax-exempt status and we'll close it. I think it's very likely these things will, will happen. And so... So as the church of Jesus, if we love the culture, if we love people, if we love God, we have to participate. You know, we've, we've got to get out there. We've got to let our votes be, be known and so on. And I hope you'll do that. Now, let me say this just before we wrap it up. I don't know what's going to happen this week. Uh, and uh, I, I guess none of us do. But, um, but here's what I know, that regardless of what happens this week, what Romans 13 tells me, is that God's on the throne, isn't he? And, and this is the thing, that every time a, a big issue like this comes up in our culture, I think there's always a tendency for us to get paranoid. And, and I think there's good reason. This, I think there's some serious things going on. But, here's, but what Romans 13 tells me is that God is in charge of the governments of the world. He's in charge. And that his movement is going to go on. So a week from now, it doesn't really matter which way this goes. We're still going to be here. We're still going to be following Jesus, and his movement's still going to be going on, right? And he's still calling us to be salt and light in this culture. And so, so while the issues are so important, 
we need to keep some perspective here as we go into this week. That no matter what happens, God is in control and he will lead us and he'll guide us. And let me say this, and that if a time comes where our government comes to us and they says, you cannot follow Jesus in this area. This is an area you can't follow Jesus. You have to teach this in the schools. You have to do this. You can't teach this in your churches. Then what will we do? Well, we will do what Christ's followers have always done. We will obey God rather than men, right? And we will stand up and we will say, hey, with all, with all respect, you know, like all through the Scripture, with all respect, we disagree on this issue. And this is one where we have to follow Christ. And so like the midwives of old that refused to kill the children, like Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego who refused to bow down, like Peter and John who said we refuse to stop speaking, we too will refuse. But we'll do it with love and we will do it with respect, you see, because that is what Jesus calls us to do, to love people and to remember that our enemies are not the enemies, our enemy is the enemy behind the enemies, remember? The God of this world who's blind to the mind, right? And so, so we need to remember that we need to love this world even when they're against us, just like Jesus loved this world, right? Let's pray. God, we face some, some big issues in our culture this week, and we want to be faithful to you, and we, we want to do the right thing, and we pray you'd come and give us wisdom. We pray that you'd inform us on how we vote. We pray that you would move in our culture. We pray you'd move in our nation. We pray you'd move in our state. And God, we just want to commit ourselves as a church that we want to follow you in the area of politics, that we want to to obey the laws in order to preserve the public good, that, Lord, we want to honor our leaders, even those that we disagree with, that we could disagree with great strength and strong voices, but that we would always do it with respect. And then finally, God, that we would participate in the process, that we would not withdraw, that we would be involved, of whatever level you call us to make this world a better place. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.